some things are much harder than they at first appear. Drinking a gallon of milk inside of an hour. The gallon challenge has claimed many a victim. Eating six saltines inside of a minute. Parallel parking. Marriage. Ask my wife. Parenting. Making it to the end of the Lion King without crying when Mufasa dies. All of these things are much more difficult to do than they seem at first. We're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we've made it up to verses 27 through 30, and we are in the midst of a section wherein Jesus is teaching us that the law is much harder to keep than we first thought. It's much harder to obey the Ten Commandments than it seemed at first. Before we get to all that, though, let's get our bearings in the text. Remember, Matthew has set out to argue that Jesus is the Messiah King. And so in the first four-ish chapters of this gospel, he has laid out Jesus' credentials as King for us. He is the son of David who brings the blessing of Abraham to the world. He's born of a virgin. He's named Jesus at the command of an angel because he will save his people from their sins. He's born in the right place. The geography of his early life casts him as a new Moses. He goes out of Egypt through waters, and here we find him preaching God's word from a mountain. He's presented to us as a new Adam. He succeeds against the temptations of the evil one where our first father failed. Jesus, Matthew wants us to see, is the king we've been waiting on. He's the new and better Adam. He's the new Moses, the great prophet upon which we waited. He's the one who will deliver God's people. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the king. That's his identity. And now, uh, from the end of chapter 4-ish to the end of chapter 9-ish, he's bringing us into contact with the power of the king, with the authority of Jesus. Now, you can see this truth because it happens between, I said, chapters 5 and 9, and he shows us Jesus' authority in his words and his works. His words in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and his works his miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And in between there, towards the end, right here at end of chapter 7, verse 28, in case we missed it, Matthew makes it plain for us, this is what he wants us to see. Verse 28, chapter 7. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Verse 29. Because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The next section we go to see his authority in every realm, over disease and demons and even death itself. Jesus is 
the long-awaited-for, snake-crushing king. And Jesus is a king with real power and real authority. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to accomplish two things primarily. He wants to drive the hearers to himself, and he's giving to us a description of what the citizens of his kingdom look like. In a sentence, we might say it this way, and if you only remember one sentence that I say in this whole sermon series years down the road, this is it. A lot of pressure on this one sentence. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us to himself and to holiness. He's calling us to himself and to holiness. And the particular kind of holiness that he's calling us to this morning in verses 27 through 30 is purity. Main idea is this this morning. Kingdom citizens pursue purity, pursue holiness. I want to encourage you to deal decisively and violently with sin. Your outline is there before you. We'll talk about the law's letter, the law's heart, and the law's promise. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak. Pray that you would help us to listen. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present with us now. We need you to start this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew, chapter 5, starting with verse 27. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So far, so good. Everybody listening to Jesus' sermon would have been familiar with this, uh, the seventh commandment, right? Not murder, Sunday school, I messed that up a little bit. It's the seventh commandment. They're all familiar with it. They've heard it. Do not commit adultery. It's, It's pretty simple. Don't have sex with anybody who's not your spouse. Seventh commandment, it rules out fornication, cohabitation, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, and in all the rest any kind of sexual activity, except for that which happens between one man and one woman, united in the covenant of marriage for one lifetime. The people get that. This is not an overly um, burdensome commandment for those listening to Jesus. Uh, Most Jews would have gotten married very early on, in their teens most likely, and the idea of committing adultery would have been an unthinkable thing. Adultery was unthinkable in Israel, and it was a capital offense. Leviticus chapter 20, 
and verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. This death was carried out in a great variety of ways, which include bo- included both burning and stoning. Adultery was a significant sin. One commentator notes, certainly an adulterer is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family. And God hates it. So far, so good. Jesus' listeners understand what he is saying, and most of them are thinking to themselves, just as they were earlier, I'm good. Just like when Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. They thought, we're good. We're good. If there's two commandments I've kept, I haven't killed anybody and I haven't committed adultery. And Jesus says once more, not so fast, my friend. Just as you are able to commit murder with your tongue when you slander your brother or sister, just as you are able to commit murder in your heart when you are angry with your brother or sister, so too you are able to commit adultery with a look. Verse 28. Now we'll back up to verse 27. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's pretty deflating. Jesus is not exactly positive and encouraging here. This is a devastating commentary. This is hurtful to our pride. I thought I had this one. Jesus is saying, you don't. You are guilty if you have looked with lustful intent at another. He's not not talking about just, you know, seeing someone and recognizing that person is beautiful or attractive. That's that's normal. Uh, The look here is a longing look, a leering look, a, a staring, a second look sort of look. And you know that you've done it. Verse 28 gets us all. You know, this whole section to me is a little bit like a, a mirror. You know those little mirrors on the side of your car? Some people use them more than others. I guess when you get older, you can't turn your neck, and so like you really need them. Uh, but I'm getting there, don't worry. But it used to be, anyhow, you'd look in those mirrors going down the road and there was writing at the bottom. It may still be there. I haven't had to look at one because of my youth, is what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> you older folks can tell me afterwards. Uh, but, it, but it says, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And, and what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount here is he clarifies that God's law goes beyond its letter to our hearts is he's taking our eyes off of that that sort of mirror that makes it seem somewhat small. 
He's lifting our heads up and helping us to see the heartbeat of the law. And what we realize in that moment is that it is much bigger than we ever imagined. Jesus is driving his listeners to himself by scaring the daylights out of them. You understand that? He's been doing it since since verse 20. The big question over the Sermon on the Mount is, who is in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now for us, we go, yeah, the scribes and Pharisees, they're jerks. Can be better than them. But, but in this day, in the first century, these are the good guys. As we said a few weeks ago, uh, the scribes are to the law as Michael Jordan is to basketball. Uh, the Pharisees are to righteousness as Tom Brady is to football. The scribes and the Pharisees are the goats of religious activity. Be like going onto a golf course back when Tiger was good. And someone's saying to you, in order for you to get into heaven, you need to outshoot Tiger Woods. And it's Sunday, and he's wearing red. Good luck. Those who are listening are going, who then can be saved? Who can get into the kingdom? And in case they missed his point, Jesus goes on to say, maybe there's some of you here who think that you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. You've kept the law. But let me tell you, you haven't really understood the law. Some have taught it to you according to its letter, but they haven't got to the heart of the matter. It's not just about not murdering physically. It's about loving those around you and being reconciled to them. You commit murder when you're angry. It's not just about not committing physical adultery. It's about being faithful to your spouse and your thoughts. Those listening are going, who then can be saved? One of the goals of the Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus to drive us to himself because all of us on our own merits stand condemned before God. We have chosen to rule our lives and to do things our way, listening to our heart, instead of obeying God's word and listening to his voice. This is cosmic treason against the creator of all things, and it deserves death. And in the event that we, we thought maybe, hey, we really, I'm a really good person, I don't deserve death, I don't deserve hell. Jesus is, is telling those who are hearing him, you do, you're not in the kingdom. You're not good enough to get into the kingdom. And friends, we, we stand in the same place as the crowd. We cannot get into the kingdom of God on our own merits. We deserve hell. And yet, God is gracious. For those who get into the kingdom of heaven are those who realize they have nothing to offer God. Nothing in my hand I bring, 
simply to thy cross I cling. That's verse 3 of chapter 5. Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who trust fully in the king of heaven are those who get into the kingdom. Why? Oh, because our king is good. Because Jesus left heaven to come and save his people. All of us are guilty of sexual sin. All of us are condemned in verse 28. Further, all of us are spiritual adulterers because we are idolaters. We have worshipped created things instead of the Creator. And yet, God is rich in mercy and He is a big spender. I love how this is illustrated in the life of the prophet Hosea. In the book that bears his name, he is commanded by God to marry a woman whom he knows will be unfaithful to him. Can you imagine getting such a command? All right, I want you to commit the rest of your life to this person, and they're going to cheat on you over and over and over. Hosea does it, and she cheats on him over and over and over. And then his whole life is to be a metaphor between, about the relationship between God and his people. And so God comes to him in chapter 3 at the beginning in one of the most intense scenes in all of the Bible. And we read, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. It's an aphrodisiac, don't worry about it. Verse 2. This is what Hosea does in response to the word of the Lord. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. We don't have all the details here, but in our sanctified imaginations, we can see Gomer standing on a slave's block for sale, scantily clad, desperate, owning nothing, we can wonder what she must have thought as the one she had hated and forsaken bought her out of slavery and brought her into his home. Brothers and sisters, the story of Gomer is our story. We have been unfaithful to the God who made us. And he has refused to give up on us. God forgives sinners. He forgives murderers. He forgives adulterers. And everything in between. Gomer's story is our story. It's the story of all who trust in Christ. Non-Christian, this story can be your story. Right now, you are in rebellion against the God who made you. Forsake your sins and return to the one who gave his son 
so that all who trust in him might live. Jesus calls us to himself in this sermon. And he calls us to holiness. He calls us to holiness. Look with me at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus gives us one promise here and two pictures. The promise is that if we don't act appropriately, decisively, in response to our sins, we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Sin, even a lustful look, is damning. It's a serious matter that must be dealt with seriously. He gives us two pictures to illustrate this truth. Some, some take them as two separate pictures, right? You, these are two uh, members of our body that uh, we can sin through the eye and the hand. So if it causes you to sin, tear the eye out. You're not done yet. You have to throw it away from yourself. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away from yourself. Now, I actually think that there's a progression here that might make us a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to bring it to your attention anyway. It's a lustful look that brings about adultery in the heart. We have a picture of sin entering through the eye and then settling down in the heart and being performed physically with the hand. Jesus is saying, it is better for you to eliminate parts of your body that would cause you to sin than it is for you to sin. Now, before you go the way of Origen, who castrated himself in response to this verse, I'll let you ruminate on that for a second, you need to understand Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's using extreme language to help us recognize the extreme importance of our holiness. He wants us to see just how terrible sin is. So he calls us to tear out our eyes and to cut off our hands. Let's and we're going to he wants us to deal decisively and radically with sin. That's the overarching point, that kingdom citizens pursue holiness by pursuing purity. We're to deal decisively and violently with sin. That's the overarching point, but before we settle down there, let's just take a moment to clarify what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is not saying in this little paragraph. First, Jesus is saying the seventh commandment can be broken with a look. He is saying that heart adultery 
is worthy of hell. He is saying that drastic action must be taken against sin. That's what he is saying. Let's talk about what he is not saying. Jesus is not saying that sex is bad. The Bible is very positive about sex in its proper context, inside of marriage. Sex was around before sin. It was around before the fall. In fact, you know what? It was required, right? Be fruitful and multiply. How do you think that happened, right? The Bible is full of positivity about sex. Read Song of Solomon, blush a little bit, and you'll discover it's true. The Apostle Paul tells married couples to regularly have sex unless they are praying and fasting. You look it up, it's in 1 Corinthians 7. Read it this afternoon. The Bible is positive about sexuality. The negative thing here is not sex. It's sex outside of its proper context. Jesus is not saying sex is bad. And Jesus is also not saying all sin is the same. I found that this is a common misunderstanding among evangelicals. We'll say, well, all sins are the same in God's eyes. Wrong. All sins earn you hell, yes. But all sins are not the same. And you know this intuitively, don't you? Right? The, the penalty in the Old Testament for committing murder is different from the penalty of theft. In our own judicial code, we understand there's a difference between you know, sex trafficking and stealing a pack of gum from the grocery store. The offenses are different. They both break the law equally, yes, but one is a greater offense than the other. Likewise, all sins earn hell. They're all a breaking of God's law. But not all sins are equally heinous. I mean, why are you bringing that up? Well, because I am a sinner, and I, I am wise enough or foolish enough to look at a passage like this and go, ooh, opportunity for some moral equivalency. You see, uh, the logic goes like this. If I commit murder simply by being angry with someone, guilty of sin, worthy of hell, I might as well actually kill someone. See? See how that works? Or if looking at someone lustfully with lustful intent is heart adultery, I might as well go the whole way and commit actual adultery. More popular in our culture, even though we're not married, if I'm going to give her a lustful look and that that means I've broken the law. Well, I might as well get some bang for my buck. You know, that was poorly phrased. <laughs> this is why I should use a manuscript. Um, all sin is not the same. It's hard to recover from that one. Jesus is not saying sex is bad. He's not saying all sin is the same. And here's the one that, that might strike you as somewhat controversial. Jesus is not saying obedience is impossible. Now, some of y'all are going, wait a minute. 
Are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? Because you just said we can't keep the law. We're sinners. It drives us to Jesus. We need his righteousness alone to be made right with God. Yep. And I'm also saying that the Bible calls us to be who we are. To be who we are in Christ. Jesus calls us to himself and he calls us to holiness. I think one of the reasons that we think obedience is impossible is because we equate obedience with perfect obedience. You see? Kevin DeYoung is helpful here, and he's written a small book called A Hole in Our Holiness. It's just, what a wonderful gift to the church. It's great. But this is what he says. God does not expect our good works to be flawless in order for them to be good. If God only accepted perfect obedience from his children, the Bible would have nothing good to say about those it calls righteous. Nothing good to say about Job or David or Zechariah or Elizabeth or anyone else except for Jesus. On the one hand, sanctification, remember we've defined sanctification here as becoming in practice what we've been declared in Christ, which is holy. On the one hand, sanctification will always be imperfect in this life. There will always be remnants of corruption in us, but by the power of the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, true believers will genuinely grow in grace. Our good works are accepted by God, not because they are wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but because God is pleased through Christ to accept our sincere obedience, although it contains many weaknesses and imperfections. Listen, God not only works obedience in us by his grace. It is also by his grace that our imperfect obedience is acceptable in his sight. Friends, holiness is not impossible, but expected. It's obvious when we read the many indicatives of the Bible. I'm only going to read a few, don't worry. Ephesians 4.1 I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 5.2 Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 John 2.3-6 And by this we know that we have come to know him, that's Jesus, if we keep his commandments. How do I know if I know Jesus? I obey him. I know that Jesus is my king if I do what he commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides, that stays, remains, lives, he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Last one. 1 Peter 1, verse 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why, Peter? Verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. 
Jesus is calling us to himself in this sermon, and he's calling us to holiness. Look at his conclusion in verse 21. What does he say? Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he says the one who hears them and doesn't do them. It's like the man who built his house on the sand. Yes, this sermon is to drive us to put our faith in Christ. That's where we are made right with God. And yes, this sermon is calling us to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus is calling us to a real obedience and a radical response to sin. What does he say? Tear out your eye. Cut off your hand. Because I promise you, if you do not you will go to hell. If you lay down with sin, it is evidence that you have not taken up your cross and followed the king. As Owen said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. We are not to pamper, flirt with, settle down with, or accommodate sin in any way. We are to deal with it decisively and drastically. We're to hate sin, to dig it out, cut it up, crush it up, put it to death, and bury it six feet under. When it comes to sin, Jesus does not advise gradual action. He counsels emergency surgery. The tools a Christian uses to address sin are not band-aids and gauze but scalpels and bone saws. The prescription is not accommodation, but amputation. When it comes to sin in your life, friends, there can be no half measures. We cannot compromise with sin. We must be willing, as it were, to pick up the hyperbolic metaphor, And say, as Christians, we are willing to go through life as holy pirates with eye patches and peg legs. We are willing to follow Jesus and to pursue holiness no matter what the cost. Because we love him, because the reward of heaven is greater than any temporary pleasure sin might have to offer, and because of the motivating reason that Jesus says right here, We don't want our whole bodies to be cast rightly into hell. That's great, Pastor. Good illustration. I liked the pirate part. Eye patches, peg legs. It's great. Kids love pirates. But practically, practically, how do I cultivate purity in my heart? I like what one commentator said. Start general and then we'll get real specific. He says, being a disciple has always required Christians to be cultural atheists, publicly disavowing Aphrodite, Ares, and the myriad of other gods of popular life. I like that. We're to be cultural atheists. What does he mean? I think it's this. 
we need to stop allowing ourselves to be overly influenced by the deities of the world around us. You know, David Wells said that sin is whatever makes righteousness look strange and worldliness look normal. I messed that up. Sin, I'm sorry, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And I think it's true of most of us. We have become worldly. We, we see sin as normal. Our songs, our shows, our social media feeds okay, promote pornography, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, orgies. That it does not cause us to recoil. It's normal. Here's an interesting thought experiment. Imagine that um, we built a time machine. You know, Matt figured out the formula back there, and Dan put it together for us because that's not my lane. Um, but but we get in this time machine. We go back in time and we pick up. Some, some saints of old. We pick up like Chrysostom and, and Augustine. And then we go forward a few hundred years and we pick up Luther and Calvin. And, and then, then we bring them, we bring them to our day and age, we bring them into our homes, and we present them with the music we listen to and the shows that we watch. That which we've come to accept as normal. How do you think they would react? aside from being amazed at television in the first place, but I think they would be appalled at what we have allowed to influence us. We've allowed sin to become normal. I mean, think, think about this, friends. Think about how often sexual intercourse is depicted on screen. Paul probably watched it and it's normal. I wonder, you know, if a couple came up to you and invited you over to their house to come into their bedroom and watch them sleep together, how would you respond? <laughs> no. No, that's weird. That's sinful. It's voyeuristic. Why then is it different when someone records it first and then shows it to you? We've come to accept sin as normal. I say this to you as somebody who loves movies. Not, don't hear me saying, here are laws you must follow, Christian. Hear me saying, calibrate your conscience according to the scripture. Are the things that you watch promoting purity and holiness in your life, a love for Jesus. Can you give thanks to God for the things that you are watching? Or would you be embarrassed? Last fall, Chelsea and I watched a show together. It was very popular. And, um, you know, we, we enjoyed, it was a timepiece, so there were great costumes, and uh, the acting was good, and some of those fun traditions. But it was also full of sensuality 
But essentially, I was suffocating. So we did as we normally would. We'll just fast forward through these more sensual parts. And at the conclusion of one episode, I realized they were about 45 minutes long. I realized, I think we fast forwarded through 40 minutes of that. Not exactly promoting purity. Worldly, huh? Just normal to invite Aphrodite into our home. Shame on us. On me in particular. Holiness is not hypothetical. Nor is purity. What about those shows that you watch? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. What about some of the songs that we listen to? Again, I'm not, not being legalistic here. I've had the Bruno song stuck in my head all week. The real ones know that we don't talk about Bruno. My kids know Baby Shark. One of God's greatest gifts to humanity is Credence Clearwater Revival. Still, we need to evaluate what we are listening to. I, I got on the Billboard Hot 100, um, not because I am familiar with it, or not because I'm cool, as shocking as that may come to some of you, but to try and, I was, I'm going to bring some lyrics up to, to share, and a lot of them were so explicit that I was like, that's actually beyond the boundary of what would be appropriate for me to share in the pulpit. So I'm back a couple decades and picked up a, a tune from uh, a movie I actually like, I'm, you know, according to your own conscience here, but Dirty Dancing, you know, Patrick Swayze, Nobody Puts Baby in the Corner, love it. But there's a song, there's a song in Dirty Dancing, it goes like this. It's not just an end one, that's not the mambo, it's a feeling, a heartbeat, gagonk, gagonk, close your eyes, gagonk. Don't try so hard. I've been meaning to tell you, I've got this feeling that won't subside. I look at you and I fantasize. You're mine tonight. Now I've got you in my sights with these hungry eyes. One look at you and I can't disguise. I've got hungry eyes. I feel the magic between you and I. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with hungry eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. I want to cultivate purity in our lives by refusing to bow down to the cultural gods that surround us, and we want to cultivate purity in our lives by putting our attention on that which is good and holy and true. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Cultivate purity in your life. This is so hard for us because we convince ourselves that we can have Jesus and this entertainment that is laced with sin. We really love our sin. Sometimes we just label it entertainment to get away with it. We think that we can eat the flesh and blood of sexual immorality and then show up on Sunday and eat the flesh and blood of the Lord's table. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. The Bible says to flee sexual immorality. It says that we should have not even a hint of sexual immorality among us. And yet, and yet there's a worldliness among us that makes sin look normal. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Did you hear that? What's the will of God for my life? Here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And he's going to clarify what he means by that. That you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Friends, holiness is not hypothetical. Jesus calls us to himself, makes us right with God, and he calls us to holiness. Those of us who have by faith been adopted into the family of God are expected to live according to the family name. We who have been born again are to walk in the newness of life. And if we are not walking in the newness of life, it may be a sign that we are stillborn. We've lied to ourselves about our salvation. Friends, Tear out your eyes. Cut off your hands. Act drastically and decisively against your sin. It's serious. It's serious enough for Jesus to not tear out his eye or cut off his hand, metaphorically, but to physically be whipped have a crown pressed upon his brow, nails driven through his hands and his feet, 
serious enough for him to physically be suspended on Calvary's hill upon a cross. Serious enough for the Father to crush him beneath the weight of his just wrath. Serious enough for him to be asphyxiated and to be placed into a tomb for three days. Before he rose again. Friends, we who have been baptized with Christ have been united with him in his death. And we who are truly in Christ but we'll be united with him in a resurrection like his. Therefore, let those of us who have come to Christ, who, who know him as our king, obey his commandments. Let us be holy as our king is holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though our sins are many, your, your mercy is more, that you love adulterers and forgive them, that you love idolaters and forgive them, that you love murderers and forgive them, that you love traitors and forgive them, that you love those who are angry with their spouses and forgive them, that you love those parents who have parented in a way that would dishonor you and forgive them, that you love children who have disobeyed their parents and forgive them, that you love those of us who have despaired of life and forgive us, that you love those of us who are ungrateful for all the many gifts that you've given to us and forgive us. We thank you that you love and forgive those of us who have settled down with worldliness and forgive us. You are so good and gracious and kind. Oh Lord, we want to offer our whole lives to you. Help us to strive to be holy as you are holy. Not to earn our salvation. You've given us that by your grace. But to love you. Because Christ, our King, died for us. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.